Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Isaiah 52. We will be starting in verse 13. This seems like a good time to lay out a couple of rules about Bible interpretation. Rule number one, the Bible does in fact interpret the Bible. And if the Bible lays out an interpretation of any particular phrase, then that is the proper interpretation. If your interpretation of some passage is contrary to how the Bible interprets itself, then you're wrong. And we have to go with the Bible's interpretation. This section of Isaiah, the end of chapter 52 and then through chapter 53, this whole section is highly quoted in the New Testament. And the New Testament authors, and in fact Jesus himself, point to sections of this part of Isaiah as evidence that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah to come. Therefore, we can conclude that Isaiah 52 and 53 is about Jesus Christ. And even though there may be some historic argument about that, certainly as you read the different rabbinical traditions, they will argue about whether Jesus Christ is the satisfaction of these things. But the Bible itself, the New Testament authors, say that he is. And so you don't get to interpret it any other way. That's the way the Bible interprets it. Secondly, context, context, context. How many times have you heard that word? Three times. Yeah, there you go. Context. You know that I'm a context wonk? For as long as I've been standing here and going back to our earliest days of meeting in my living room, I have always argued for context. The context of this section of Isaiah, I hope you recognize now in the weeks of building up to it, and certainly you'll see it in the weeks after it, the context is about Israel. The context is about God's promises of restoration and redemption for Israel. And then... After explaining how hard-hearted they are, how rebellious they are, how wounded they are, after all of that, God says that he's going to give them this glorious future and this glorious restoration. And now he basically is launching into how he's going to accomplish that redemption. On what basis can he forgive them for their hard-hearted rebellion? And the answer is right here in the suffering servant, who he's going to exalt, who he's going to send to earth, who's going to be punished, who's going to take on our sin and our sicknesses and our or we or us or any of those pronouns that you see in this section are all Isaiah talking to Israel. Now granted, we are brought by grace to faith in Christ so that we can stand before God. We are brought by grace through faith through the new covenant. But the promises of this section 
still belong to Israel. So just because we are brought into these promises, and just because we can read these promises and rely on them because of everything they say and how they have verified Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, we cannot then say, well, because we Gentiles now recognize that and because we are saved by that, that is now the exclusion of Israel. If we're looking at the context, if we're just reading this, you know, this is one of the problems with doing the kind of verse by verse, week by week, month by month, working our way through books of the Bible, is that sometimes you kind of lose the large overriding context. If you were just reading the prophecies of Isaiah, even if you were just starting at the section of the suffering servant a few chapters ago, by the time you got to Isaiah 52 and 53, it would be undeniable to you that the context is about Israel. It's about the promises made to Israel and the restoration of Israel. And so you do damage to the text if you read it and say, wow, this is wonderful. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. This is deliverance for the church. And this is redemption for the church. And we Gentiles in the church, this is all our promise. If you come to that conclusion and then decide that Israel is excluded from it, you have just damaged the context and as a consequence damaged the text itself. A text without context becomes a pretext. How many years have I heard that drilled into me? But it's true. You end up saying things that are wrong, that are different than what the original author was getting at. Isaiah was clearly getting at God's promises of restoration for Israel and then introduced Christ into the conversation. So I don't like it when preachers take this section of Isaiah, lift it from its context, and then preach messages to the modern church about how this is evidence and prophecy about Christ coming and delivering us and redeeming us. And then they say nothing contextually about the fact that it is also the guarantee of God's promises to Israel. And so you've got to remember that big context. This is, as I just said, one of the best-known passages of the book of Isaiah. Most folks, if you say, tell me something about the book of Isaiah, they might know, because they might know the song, they might know something like, Ho, everyone who thirsteth, come ye to the waters. But the second most common passage is uh, Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, high and lofty, and then the description of God there. But the most commonly preached passage out of the book of Isaiah is this that we're just about to read. And so sometimes, because we're so familiar with it, we can neglect what it's actually saying in favor of what we have traditionally always believed that it has said. And so we are going to take the time to kind of look at it verse by verse, idea by idea, rather than just taking it as a whole section and using that as a Christmas verse and reading it as if it was on the inside of a Hallmark card. Okay? So those are kind of our hermeneutical, exegetical overview rules for the night. As we go through this, I will uh, pull out some of the passages, some of the key passages 
that are quoted in the New Testament so that you can see the way that the New Testament authors approached it and what they had to say about it. And once again, their interpretation and understanding of it is the correct one. Chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Okay, now that comes right on the heels, remembering that there are no chapter divisions, no verse divisions in Isaiah's original writing and prophecy. It comes right on the heels of God promising that he's going to deliver Israel and Jerusalem in particular from their oppressors and that the wasteland of Jerusalem is going to be restored. If we back up just a few verses, like to verse 9, break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people and he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his mighty arm, and he's about to describe who that mighty arm is. He has bared his mighty arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch nothing unclean. Go out of the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in haste. And you will not go out as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant will prosper, and he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. That's the way it flowed originally in Isaiah's writing. And so to create a wedge between what we know as verse 12 and verse 13 would be to treat the text arbitrarily, because there is no wedge there. There is no separation there. It is a continuation of the same thought in Isaiah's mind. The promise of restoration and redemption for Israel and that the God of Israel is going to lead them before them and come up behind them to guard them and he's going to do it through the arm of the Lord and that is his righteous servant. Behold, my servant will prosper. And he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Very, very interesting phrase. If you do go back to Isaiah 6, I just mentioned it a moment ago, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and here is the description that Isaiah gives of Yahweh when he sees him. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne Lofty and exalted. That word exalted means lifted up high. And the train of his robe filled the temple and seraphim stood above him, each having six wings and with two they covered their face and with two they covered their feet and with two they flew and one called out to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts and the whole world is full of his glory. So Isaiah, in order to describe the holiness of God, and to describe the glory of God, use the phrase, he is high and lifted up. He is lofty. He is not just physically above us, but that he is spiritually above us. He is perfect in all his ways. He is untouched by sin. He is unspotted. He is completely holy and righteous. He is glorious. And that entire description is wrapped up in the phrase, He's lofty, he's high, 
He's lifted up. He's so far above what we are. So then, when Isaiah describes Messiah to come, when he describes the servant of God, who he's been describing for the last couple of chapters and gradually introducing us to, when he describes him, the first thing he says of him is, he is high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now, any thoroughgoing Jew who has received the prophecies of Isaiah, that in the year that King Uzziah died, that's a piece of their history. They know then what year that happened. And they know that Isaiah saw this image of God, and the image of God that he saw of Yahweh, which rightly, you can say this of God, you can say this of Yahweh, that he is high, he's lifted up, he's lofty, he's completely separate from us. He's so much better than us. He is so much more glorious than us. And every Jew reading that would think, well, yes, that's our God. And now Isaiah says that the servant of God is also high and lifted up and greatly exalted and lifted up. So to the Jewish mind, they're making the connection instantly that this has to be God. This is God incarnate. And that becomes the beginning of so much of the Jewish debate about this entire section. I know I'm leaping forward a little bit, but in Isaiah 53, we're going to hear that the righteous servant who's coming is going to die, that he's going to suffer and die. And yet God is going to prolong his days and see his offspring and be content with that. And and so it describes the suffering servant, the Messiah to come, who's going to die and who's going to live after he's dead. And because they did not really understand the theology of resurrection, the rabbinical tradition and part of the rabbinical argument through the years came down to the idea that still is out there being bandied around on the internet to this very day, came up with the conclusion that there had to be two messiahs. Isaiah had to be describing two different people who they referred to as Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. And Messiah ben David, Messiah the son of David, would be the fulfillment of the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant. And he was the one who was going to sit on the throne and rule the 12 tribes and keep all the promises that God had made to Israel. That's one Messiah. But then there's this other one, Messiah ben Joseph the son of the tribes, the northern tribes, that were all known by the nickname of Joseph. So you've got the tribe of Judah and David and Messiah ben Judah, but then you've got the northern tribes, Joseph and Messiah ben Joseph. And because Messiah ben Joseph has been out of his land and being punished by God, the ultimate punishment is going to be that when their Messiah comes, he's going to be the one that dies. But Messiah ben David, he's the one that's going to rule. Because they couldn't see how it could possibly be that one man could satisfy the entire prophecy of Isaiah. So Isaiah starts right out by kind of explaining that and saying, this Messiah I'm describing is one with Yahweh. He's one with God. He's the only person on planet Earth of whom it can be said that he's high and lifted up and lofty and above us the same way that Yahweh is. 
See the connection? Mm -hmm. And you see the importance of it. The importance of that connection is to show that Isaiah was describing something that even the rabbis didn't quite get yet. And yet in the mystery and the revelation of God, he said 700 years in advance that when his son, his mighty arm, his chosen servant, when he came to the planet, he was going to satisfy the death that paid for sin and redemption for Israel and for the church and for all those whom God had chosen. But he is also then, after having paid that ransom price, going to resurrect and going to live again. And so he is both the sacrifice and he is the king to rule. And so he is going to satisfy both parts of the prophecies of redemption through sacrifice and ruling on David's throne. Both of those in one person. And the only way that can happen is if that one person is God. And Isaiah starts right out with, remember that whole lifted up lofty thing I described back when King Uzziah died? Remember that? Well, this servant is also just like that. And that's the only way you're going to be able to understand everything else he's about to describe. Behold, my servant will prosper, and he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you. And then the NASB adds, my people, to kind of drive home the point that he was saying that to Israel, the very people he was addressing in verse 12. Well, of course, th those would be the same people that he's addressing in verse 14. And so in that case, what God is saying here is, there are people, your enemies, the people who conquered you, who have blasphemed me, who have blasphemed my name, who have said that I have abandoned you because I've put you into this captivity, and therefore, I'm going to punish them. We've already seen all that. I'm going to punish them for the way they blaspheme my name by the way that they make fun of and hiss at my people. And so Isaiah is saying the same way that you, my people, have been astonished. People have looked at you and have wondered at the fact that they could see you in this position in the same way my servant's appearance is also going to be astonishing because he is going to be marred more than any man. So if that is the correct reading, there are two ways to read it. If you take those words added by the NASB translators, my people, if you take those words out, then perhaps God is speaking directly to his servant and saying that many are going to be astonished at you. We know that is true. And certainly they're going to be astonished when your appearance is more marred than any man has ever been beaten up. We know that that is true because Jesus on the cross was not only beaten and whipped and had his beard plucked out, but then he was nailed to a chunk of wood. And then on top of that, there was darkness on the earth so that people couldn't look on the body of Christ for three hours as God poured out his punishment for sin on Christ, you put all of that together and you know that that's a man who was really beaten up, more marred, more disfigured than any man has ever been. So either that is the astonishing thing, or God is saying, 
just as many people were astonished at you, my people, they're also going to be astonished at my right arm when I send him. He's going to take on the shame that you have been carrying. His appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And thus he's going to sprinkle many nations. We here in 21st century Gentile church, we really don't sprinkle much anymore. But in the Old Testament, every piece of furniture that you find in the holiest place, everything in the temple was sprinkled with blood. There were sacrificial lambs, and then the blood of the sacrifice was collected. And then in order to make the objects within the temple holy objects, they were sprinkled with that sacrificial blood. And so when you see he's going to sprinkle many nations, what that means is that his blood, the flowing of his blood, is going to make people of all nations, not just Jews, but Gentiles alike, He's going to make them holy. He's going to set them apart for God's own exclusive use. The same way that the utensils within the holy place were all made holy by the sprinkling of sacrificial blood, Christ himself is going to sprinkle his blood on many nations, making them appropriate for God's own use. So the early Jews would have understood that. We just kind of don't feel that anymore because... We're not in the sprinkling business much anymore. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. One of the things that we know about Christ is that he's going to be, when he returns, king of kings, lord of lords. The lords of the earth, the kings of the earth, he is going to be master, superior, authority over all of them, and therefore they are going to shut their mouths. They are no longer going to be authorities. They are no longer going to have opinions. His is going to be the only voice that counts for anything. So not only is he going to sanctify people from all nations on earth, including Gentiles, but even the kings of the earth and the kings of the Gentiles are going to shut their mouths on account of him. Because what had not been told them, they're going to see it. And what they had not heard, they're going to understand it. That's speaking of the Gentile kings and the Gentile nations who don't have the Old Testament, who don't have the revelation from the prophets, who don't have the law of Moses, who don't have the oracles of God. They don't have any of that. And so because they don't have it, they haven't been told all of these things about the Messiah to come, the Christ to come. And though they haven't been told it, they're the ones that are going to see it. And even though they hadn't heard about it, they're the ones that are going to come to understanding of it because God is going to reveal it to them when Christ himself comes back, sets himself up as king of kings, sitting on David's throne, and all the nations who had previously not understood are going to come to the understanding. What kind of understanding? Well, to begin with, that the Bible is true. Mm -hmm. That everything the Bible has to say is true. It's very interesting at this particular moment in time. 
I don't know if you spend any time like on YouTube or other social media listening to preachers, but I do. It's a regular, everyday affair for me that I go listen. And boy, there is this real tendency going on in the online church these days where everybody is rushing to prophecy. Everybody's rushing to revelation. Why are they doing that? Well, because the events of the world right now happen to be floods and famines and earthquakes and wars and rumors of war and pestilence. And, and so because those things are so obvious in the world right now, people who otherwise in their day-to-day -day life would give no attention to the Bible are all kind of going, you know, this feels very biblical. Well, you can only imagine what it's going to be like when Christ himself returns. When Christ comes back, conquers the kings of this earth, sets up his throne, and is ruling from planet earth so that the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven. People who had no understanding before that are going to go, oh, this is really, really biblical. This is exactly what the Bible's been talking about for the past 5,000 years. Well, that's going to be the same way when Christ comes. Kings are going to shut their mouths on account of him. What has not been told to them, they are finally going to see it. And what they had not heard, they're finally going to understand. Well, Paul picks up that very concept in Romans 15. You can turn there or not. I'm going to read it to you. Romans 15 I'm going to start reading at verse 18 just so that we can get the context. But Paul quotes directly from Isaiah 52, verse 15. So he's going to give us the proper interpretation of it. Paul is explaining his ministry to the Gentiles. And he is explaining why it is that he would give his life, give his back, give his strength to going into areas that had never heard the gospel before and being willing to take the beatings and the stonings and the rejection and everything else so that he could go tell the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who had never heard it before. So starting at verse 18 of Romans 15, he says, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And in this way, I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already known by name, so that I would not build on some other person's foundation. So he's explaining here why it is that he was willing to go and preach the gospel, not in places where Christ had already been named, not where people already knew anything about him, not where some other man had already laid a foundation, and then he came in behind them and found a, an easy path before him because the foundation was already laid. He went and preached in the most difficult situations he could find among people who didn't know anything about the Jewish Messiah, who had never heard the name of Christ, who don't know anything about it, why would he do that? He said in verse 21, because it is written, they who have not heard about him will see, and they who have not heard will understand. So he took Isaiah's prophecy, 
and said, part of the revelation of Christ is that among the Gentiles, people are going to understand and see something that had never been revealed to them previously, something they had never understood previously. And based on that promise, Paul would go out and preach to people who had no background in Judaism, had no background in the Bible, didn't know Jesus from Adam. Well, literally, didn't know Jesus from Adam. Didn't know anything. And yet, those were the people he wanted to go talk to because he had the firm promise from the prophecy of Isaiah that some people were going to hear it. And that's an amazing foundation on which to build your ministry. You know, I have for years said the biblical doctrine of election, rather than being any sort of hindrance to our evangelistic work or our evangelistic call, the fact that we understand the doctrine of election should be our inspiration to get out there and tell the gospel and evangelize because we know for certain that God has chosen some people who are going to hear it. And so even though some people won't hear it, some people definitely are. And so we're out there looking for those sheep. We're out there preaching to those people. And along the way, we're going to tell people who had never heard it before, who had never understood it before. And the lights are going to go on, and everybody's home. Mm. And they get it. Well, okay, that's because of the truth of God's election. It's also part of the truth of what Isaiah has predicted here, that when Christ does come, that the Gentiles, who hadn't ever been told any of this before, they're going to see it. And people who had not heard about it are going to have understanding. And that became the basis for Paul to go out and preach in some of the most difficult circumstances, environments, and cultures. And he was willing to do it because of the promise that they were going to hear it and understand it. Yes, sir? And God has done the best groundwork that could be done by writing their names in the Lamb's Book of Life. Absolutely. And that finally takes us to Isaiah 53, which is a continuation of the same thought who has believed our message. Now, a moment ago, Isaiah said that people who had not been told it are going to see it. People who have not heard it, they're going to understand it. And now the question seems to be turning back to who then is going to believe it? We're going to get out here and report this. We're going to get out here and tell this message. We're going to tell of the Messiah to come. But who believed it? Now he answers the question, and he answers it the exact same way that Tom just did in completely different words. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Just previously, we already read it this evening, that God is in the business of revealing his arm. The Lord has bared his mighty arm in the sight of all the Gentiles so that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God and then God sent his son, his arm, to the earth. And then his son died and resurrected. And then people go out and tell that message. But who's going to have faith in that message? Who's going to believe that message? The answer is the ones that the Lord revealed it to. And so even here we see the doctrine of election jumping off the page. 
God has to reveal it to you in order for you to understand it. I'm going to quote John Riesinger one more time just because I've always liked this quote. He said, election is not the gospel. It is the guarantee of the gospel's effectiveness. And that's accurate. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is described here in Isaiah 53 in some great detail. But who's going to believe it? Especially now, 2,000 years after the fact, how much of the world actually believes it? Well, some people do. Who were those people? The ones who God chose, the ones whose names he wrote down in the Lamb's Book of Life, the people who he elected, the ones that he revealed it to, proving once again that Christianity is a revealed religion. And if God doesn't reveal it to you, people can tell it to you, people can show it to you, and you will not believe it. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And now he's going to describe him. For he, the arm, the Messiah, Christ, grew up before him, God, like a tender shoot and like a root growing up out of parched ground. What a great description. John puts it this way at the beginning of the Gospel of John. He came to his own and his own received him not. It's describing the exact same thing. A tender shoot is a green shoot, a new shoot, a healthy shoot. But he's growing up out of parched ground that has no life in it, that has no water in it. And yet the prince of life is going to grow up among these rebellious, hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. He grew up before God like a tender shoot and like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty. That's true. This is the difference between human ego and the genuine humility of the Son of God. Considering that he told his apostles, don't you know that I could ask the Father and he would send legions of angels to come defend me? That's the kind of power he had. That's the kind of authority he had. He had the kind of authority where he could walk on water. That's authority. Can anybody here take authority over water? Come on. He had the ability to speak to disease and make it leave. He had authority over disease. He had authority over men. He had authority over demons. He has authority over angels. He has all majesty and authority. And in fact, as we just saw, Paul says that all deity was wrapped up in him in bodily form. Okay, that's a lot of majesty he's carrying around with him. Which means if he wanted to, if he was anything like me or Jeff, he would have said, I'm king of the world right now. Go get me some robes and some servants and stick a crown on my head and everybody better start genuflecting. I'm boss. He didn't do that. Instead, what we read is, he had no stately form and no majesty. Instead, what we know is he was born in a manger, hung out with fishermen and tax collectors and sinners, and, and he didn't adorn himself in majesty and put himself in a castle somewhere. He had no stately form or majesty so that we would gaze on him and look at him and go, ooh, look at him. 
nor did he have any appearance so that we would be attracted to him. That's the way human beings just naturally are when we see people who have power, when we see people who have wealth, when we see people driving fancy cars or having you know, some authority over other people, we gravitate toward those people. We're like, oh, dig him. This is somebody who clearly really has it together in life. And so the description of Christ is he's not going to surround himself in majesty. He's not going to give himself some form of earthly authority among men so that you would look at him and admire him and long after him. He's not going to have any kind of appearance so that we'd be attracted to him. Instead, verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Okay, we're talking about the very Son of God. We're talking about the one who could call angels. We're talking about the one with all authority in heaven and earth over everything and everyone. And yet he was acquainted with grief? How can that be possible? In what way would he be willing to acquaint himself with grief? A man of sorrows, despised, forsaken of men, and he's described as the very arm of God. He is Messiah to come. He is God incarnate, high and lofty and lifted up. That's how Isaiah began describing him. My servant will prosper and he's going to be high and lifted up and he's going to be greatly exalted. And by contrast, he's despised. He's forsaken of men. He's a man of sorrows and he's acquainted with grief. Surely, our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. First off, remember what I said at the beginning of tonight. I said, pay attention to the pronouns. Who is we and our through that whole passage? It's okay, you know, you can say it. It's Israel, it's Jerusalem. That's the context. Remember that it began with Jerusalem, who are in captivity. Jerusalem, who God has promised to deliver and redeem. Jerusalem, full of the people who he's going to come to, who are going to receive him not, who are ultimately going to crucify him. And so they're the ones that are going to hate him and despise him and forsake him. That's why he's a man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief. And yet, our grief, the griefs, the burden that was carried by Israel, that was carried by Jerusalem, our grief, he's going to bear. That's how he becomes acquainted with grief. Not because he deserves the grief. He doesn't do anything wrong. He is carrying the grief collectively of all his people and particularly and specifically Jerusalem. That's the context. There's no way to get around that context. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. It's a remarkable description of the arm of the Lord who's high and lifted up and lofty. 
Okay, so that's the first section of Isaiah 53. And I want to continue to just kind of pick this apart. In verse 1, who has received or who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Jesus himself picked up that phraseology. I told you at the beginning of tonight, I'm going to show you in the New Testament how even Jesus applies this to himself. So there's no question about who's being described here. If you want to look at it, go to John 12. We're going to read verses 36 to 41. John 12, starting at verse 36. These things Jesus proclaimed. And then he went away and he hid himself from them from his followers, from his disciples. But though he had performed so many miracles in their sight, they still were not believing in him. Okay, so of the people that John is describing right here, what people group is he describing? Jews, Israel. And in fact, specifically, the Jews surrounding Jerusalem. They were the ones who saw him do all these miracles in their sight, and yet they were still unbelieving. Proof yet again that Christianity has to be revealed to you. The arm of the Lord has to be revealed or you're not going to get it. In fact, the arm of the Lord, the very Son of God, can be standing in front of you doing miracles and feeding you, and you're still not going to understand it unless God reveals it to you. So Jesus left them. And though he had performed so many signs in their sight, they were still not believing. And this happened so that the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, would be fulfilled, which says, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So John sees in the activity of Jesus and in the way that Jesus is rejected, that that is the satisfaction and fulfillment of Isaiah 53.1. In other words, John's not surprised by it. John says this is the satisfaction of all Scripture. The same way that Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, on the Sermon on the Mount, or of the Mount, near the Mount, somewhere in the neighborhood of the Mount, Jesus said, don't think that I've come to abolish the Law and the Prophets. I haven't come to abolish. I've come to fulfill. That's what he's doing right here. Isaiah 53.1 is fulfilled in the fact that he came to his own. His own didn't receive him. He did miracles among them, and they still didn't get it. And so John says, and even that is a satisfaction of prophecy from Isaiah that God has to reveal it to them. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, for this reason, they could not believe. So there's the explanation right there. They could walk and talk with Jesus. They could be fed by Jesus. They could see the miracles of Jesus. And they still didn't understand who he was. They still didn't get the revelation because God hadn't opened their minds to it yet. Why? because they had to hate him enough to be willing to kill him because that was the salvation of all God's people. And so God hid it from them, but 700 years in advance, Isaiah said, and oh yeah, God's going to hide it from you. 
And then when that actually happened in time and circumstance and history, John points it out and says, oh yeah, this happened because Isaiah predicted this was going to happen. For this reason, they could not believe, for Isaiah said again in another place, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart so that they will not see with their eyes and understand with their heart and be converted and so I will not heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw the glory of Christ and he spoke about him, about Jesus of Nazareth. So John picks up these prophecies from Isaiah in order to say this is legitimately about Jesus of Nazareth. And not just because it is Jesus of Nazareth who died, but it was Jesus of Nazareth who was rejected. It was Jesus of Nazareth who did these miracles and people still didn't believe. Every part of his life and ministry was the satisfaction of what was predicted about him. And so John is pointing back to the prophecy of Isaiah of the hardening of Israel's hearts and saying that's why they didn't believe. Because they couldn't believe because Isaiah said, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? So that, I say again, has to be the correct interpretation. Because that's John's interpretation. That's the New Testament interpretation. If you say something else about it, you would be... What's that wrong? That would be the word, right? Also then, that same verse again, so much of Isaiah 53 gets carried into the New Testament. That same verse is also picked up by Paul in Romans 10. If you want to turn there, Romans 10, I'm going to start reading at verse 14. How then? Are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear it without a preacher? But how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed that good news, that gospel. And why did they not all heed it? Because Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So Paul is arguing here that faith itself is a gift from God that comes through hearing about Christ, but even the ability to hear it is something that God has to give you, and he bases that theology on the fact that Isaiah has already said, Lord, who has believed our report? So whether it's Jesus or whether it's Paul, the New Testament authors agree there that unless God reveals to you the things of Christ, you cannot understand them, and that very reality was prophesied all the way back here in Isaiah. Pretty amazing. I think it's pretty amazing. Am I boring you? <laughs> no. Okay. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty 
that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Okay, so why did he end up despised by men? Why did he come to his own and his own didn't receive him? Because in the large, glorious plan of God since before the foundation of the world, he was going to send his son to the planet and his son was going to be rejected by men. Only through God's revelation could any of them see him, understand him, hear him, pay attention to him. But the majority of men were going to despise him and forsake him causing him to know sorrow and to know grief. And he was going to be despised and people were not going to esteem him so that they would hate him enough to crucify him because that single event then becomes the salvation of all the people God has chosen since before the foundation of the world. And that is not just New Testament theology. That's theology that is interwoven into Isaiah 53. Surely, says verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, and yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He didn't deserve it. He was the sinless one. He was the righteous one. The reason that he hung on that cross and was pierced through was for our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. i got to go back and ask the same question again. Who do all of those pronouns refer to? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Contextually, it's Jerusalem. There's no way to get around that. Now, granted, the theology of the fact that our sins were placed on Christ, we as believing Gentiles, that our transgressions were placed on him, that's all true. But if you say that's all true and therefore he's done with Israel, then you're not saying what Isaiah said. Because the first part of Isaiah 52 is all about promises to Jerusalem and that God is going to restore them and redeem them despite their hard-heartedness and their stiff necks and that he was going to take out their heart of stone, that he was going to give them a heart of flesh and that he is going to redeem them. And so this description of the Redeemer to come is all about the Redeemer of Israel who is coming to redeem Jerusalem specifically and then we by grace get to be partakers in what God is doing for his people Israel. And so that is why I keep stressing that it's an astounding grace, it's an amazing grace, that God would let Gentiles like us be saved through the finished work of Christ so that his glory, his majesty, redounds to all the nations of the earth. But if you say it's to all the nations of the earth, but to the exclusion of Israel, then you're saying the opposite of what Isaiah has already said. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastisement or the chastening 
for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Okay, so go back to Isaiah 1, the very beginning of Isaiah, because I want you to see this contrast. And as we've been going through chapter by chapter through the book of Isaiah, I've been stressing this fact, kind of building up until we got here to Isaiah 53. Because if I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times from the health, wealth, prosperity, healing preachers, they all know that verse, they all quote that verse, by his stripes we are healed. And they'll then say, you know, you're going to be in perfect health because Jesus has already paid the price for your sickness. And then, sadly, people suffer sickness. And people go through the difficulties of this life. And when they do, they've got one of two choices. They either come to the conclusion that they were taught wrong, or they come to the conclusion that the Bible is wrong. And I've known so many people through the years who came to church, came to Christianity because they believed that that was going to make them well. It was going to make them whole and healthy. And when that didn't happen, they blamed God and they ran away from the church because they misunderstood what this passage was saying. Isaiah 1, I'm going to read six verses. This is the vision that Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, oh, by the way, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey knows its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, People weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of your foot even to the head, There is nothing sound in it, only bruises and welts and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. In other words, Isaiah begins with, Israel is sick. And then we read that by his stripes, we are healed. Same book, same author. The meaning seems pretty obvious, that this is the healing of the nation, as part of the redemption of the nation, as part of the restoration of the nation. Jeremiah was writing at the same time as Isaiah, while Judah was in the Babylonian captivity. This is the way Jeremiah described them. You can just listen. You don't have to turn to it. Jeremiah 30, starting at verse 17. Here's the promise. For I, this is God speaking, for I will restore you to health. And I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast, saying, it is Zion. No one cares for her. This is what the Lord says. Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. 
and the city will be rebuilt on its ruins, and the palace will stand on its rightful place. From them will come a song of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate, and I will multiply them, and they will not decrease. I will honor them, and they will be significant, and their children also will be as before, And their congregation will be established before me, and I will punish all their oppressors, and their leader shall be one of them. That's right, Christ himself was among them. And their ruler will come out of their midst. And I will bring him near, and he will approach me. For who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. You shall be my people. I shall be your God. In that context, when, when Jeremiah starts with, I'm going to restore you to health and I'm going to heal your wounds, he then describes what that looks like. And the description is the restoration of Israel. Yep. Okay, so with that context, when we read, by his stripes we are healed, what is Isaiah really saying? If we understood what Isaiah was really saying, that by the stripes, by the beating, by the bloodshed, by the finished sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, that is the sure guarantee of everything God has promised to Jerusalem and to Israel. That is why God could say, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to place you back in your land. I'm going to raise you up in people and in cattle. I'm going to expand your borders. I'm going to do all of that because I was angry at you for your sinfulness for your hard-headedness, for your rebellion, for chasing after your other lovers. I was angry at you, and so rather than wipe you out and punish you, which is what you deserve, I'm going to send my arm, my son, my Messiah, as the one who is going to bear your sorrows, as the one who's going to know your grief, as the one who I'm going to afflict rather than afflict you, and then I'm able to keep the promises that I made going all the way back to Abraham, then I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to bring you back to your land, and I'm going to establish you. And that is exactly what Jeremiah 30 describes, which, by the way, is the chapter just before the promise of the new covenant. It all fits together, and it all fits together so remarkably well that I am sort of astounded by the lack of understanding that pervades so much modern-day theology. Instead, surely, he himself bore our griefs. He himself has carried away our sorrows. We ourselves esteemed him as stricken and smited or smitten by God and afflicted. And he was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Next week we will start at, and all we like sheep have gone astray. That's true of Israel. That's true of us. Were it not for God's hand of protection and redemption, There's not a one of us that wouldn't wander off completely. But to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The arm of the Lord has been revealed to those within Israel who he has chosen and those within the church whom he has chosen. Thank God he chose Gentiles to know the things of Christ. And so our sins, our transgressions, our rebellion is laid on Christ and he is our substitute. Thank God for that. Amen. But he is equally and also 
Jerusalem, Judah, Isaiah's Redeemer. He was stricken, smitten, afflicted for them as much as for us. And the correct biblical equation is he did that for all God's people, which includes the believing church and Israel, Judah, who have the promises of God dating all the way back to Abraham. And you cannot say, well, this is exclusively Israel's, therefore it doesn't count for the church. And you can't say this is exclusively the church's, so it doesn't count for Israel. Instead, the biblical equation is this is God's astounding mercy and grace to people who simply don't deserve it and he has to reveal it to you for you to understand it and if you do understand the least little thing about it tell him thank you when you hit your knees tonight because if he didn't reveal it to you you would know nothing about it thank you for listening to this week's salvation by grace message we encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.